the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Joshua. The nation of Israel had finally entered and conquered the land promised to them. God gave them the victory over all the Canaanite kings and cities that stood against them. There was no army left to fight against Israel at this time in the land of Canaan. The war was finally over. It was time for rest. But Joshua and the Israelites still had work to do. They were to divide the promised land among each of the individual tribes of Israel so that they would conquer the remaining land. Would Israel be faithful to the end and live in God's continued victory? We join Pastor Will in Joshua chapter 13, verse 13. Verse 13, Nevertheless, the children of Israel did not expel, did not drive out, take possession of the Geshurites nor the Maacathites. But the Geshurites and the Maacathites dwell among the Israelites unto this day. Although Moses conquered this land, the half-tribe of Manasseh who got this portion of that land didn't deal with these two groups. And they became a thorn in Israel's side all throughout their history. In fact, after Nebuchadnezzar captured Jerusalem, it was a Maacathite who made an alliance with the Ammonites to oppose Gedaliah, the one that Nebuchadnezzar left in charge of Jerusalem. He was the one who assassinated that guy, that governor, that Israel had to flee to Egypt after the defeat of Jerusalem, leaving not a single Jew in the promised land making God's judgment complete. God gave them every opportunity to trust the Lord, but they didn't deal with this in the beginning and it came back to hurt them. This is why we cannot have partial obedience in our lives because even if it doesn't hurt us now, it may come back to hurt us in the future. 15, 20 years after the war's over, Joshua's lamenting here that these two people groups are still here. You know, Joshua's life had many, many victories, but it also ended with some sadness because of Israel's disobedience and lack of faith. Like when you get to the end of the book of Joshua, he's 110 years old, he's about to die. And he tells me, he goes, listen, as for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. So you need to make a choice who you're gonna serve too after I'm dead. And he said, Joshua, we're gonna serve the Lord. And he goes, you can't serve the Lord. You're a bunch of da 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 And he kind of comes off as a grumpy old man, a grumpy kind of a disillusioned old man who's just lost hope. But that's what you're hearing is the sadness of a guy who's already seen it right in front of him. He goes, God did everything for us. He knocked down the walls of Jericho. He made the sun stand still. Don't you see what God did? And for the last 20 years, some of you have done nothing. So make a choice. I'm dying. Make a choice this day whom you'll serve. We're going to serve the Lord. He goes, you're not going to serve the Lord. (laughs) Don't just say it, mean it. And he tells them if they really mean it to make a renew their covenant with God. And that's how Joshua ends. They renew their covenant with the Lord. And then they do exactly what Joshua said, and they don't serve the Lord. Sad story. But there was a lot of sadness at the end of Joshua's life because of Israel's disobedience and lack of faith. He laments it here. Now, with all 12 tribes covered regarding the land distribution, Joshua needs to clarify that this does not include the Levites. Verse 14, only under the tribe of Levi, he gave no inheritance, no land. 
okay? Even though all the nine and a half tribes are going to get land, the two and a half tribes already got their land. He says, the tribe of Levi, they will not get any land because the sacrifices of the Lord God of Israel made by fire, that's their inheritance as he had said unto them. And that happens all the way back in the book of Numbers. But the idea here is that only the Levites could serve in the tabernacle, okay? But that was balanced by their personal sacrifice that they would not get any land to cultivate and make money off of, make their livelihood off of that. Now, they had places to live. They had Levitical cities scattered throughout Israel with a limited amount of land for crops and livestock so that they could feed their families and stuff, but it was never for their personal gain. They always had to leave behind the idea of personal gain. You know, I have sometimes people will come to me and they say, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about retiring, Pastor Will. I mean, I'm, I've made my money. I'm thinking about retiring and going into the ministry. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's a great aspiration. I said, but I've found that people who are, have been business entrepreneurs for their whole life have a hard time giving that up. I said, you understand that this may cost you everything, right? You need to understand that. Listen, when I was 17 years old, I was deeply confused about where my life was heading. It was right before my senior year in high school. And I always wanted to be an architect my whole life. You know, they call them engineers now. I always wanted to be an architect. And growing up, that was my way. I loved math. You know, loved, loved all that stuff. Loved drawings and, you know, loved making maps and drawings. I, you know, always wanted to do things like that. But as I be- became a Christian in junior high and then really started walking with the Lord in high school, a lot of that desire was gone. It faded. I didn't want to do anything, really. I wanted to serve the Lord. That was it. That's the only thing I wanted to do. And so as I was going into my senior year, I, I need to apply to colleges. I need to, I need to do this. I need to do that. I need to start making a plan. I don't know, but I don't want to, I don't feel like any of these things are what I'm supposed to do. And so the Lord, I spent some time fasting and praying at the advice of my, my pastor, my leadership at church, my parents. And so I sought the Lord. The Lord called me to the ministry. About a year later, my wife and I started to date. And one of the first things I said to her is I said, you need to understand something. God's called me to the ministry. If you're going to marry me, you're going to be poor. That's what I told her. I said, I will never strive to be rich. I will never be looking to, to make money with my life. I said, my whole life will be devoted to serving the Lord. If you're okay with that, we can keep dating. Otherwise, you need to go. Now, I probably could have said it nicer. But the point was, I understood that. I'm not saying that making money is bad. That's not my point. But a lot of times I'll hear people who say, you know, I want to serve the Lord. But frequently, you start talking about what they need to give up to do that. Oh, no, I think I can do both. You can't do both. You can't have two pursuits in your life. If you're going to serve the Lord, you need to leave whatever it is else you're pursuing behind. Because Jesus said, you can't have two masters. You'll love one and hate the other. So if God's called you to the ministry, you know, whether it's the mission field, evangelism, pastoral leadership, counseling, whatever it might be, if he's called you to that, then you need to make a choice. You can't keep trying to do two things because if you keep trying to do two things, you're going to find yourself doing nothing. You're going to find yourself in the middle, not accomplishing anything. Some people are jealous of those who are selected for ministry leadership. In some circles, I can see why. In the United States in particular, it comes with prestige and a nice salary to serve the Lord. But biblical leadership is sacrificial service. You give up something here. And any leadership model that doesn't require that isn't a biblical leadership model. So the reason that nine and a half tribes are only mentioned in verse seven is because two and a half already got their land east of the Jordan and the Levites received no land. But if you're good at math, you know that makes only 11 tribes, right? Right? If nine and a half are getting their land here, but one of them doesn't, that's eight and a half. And then two and a half got it there. That's only 11 tribes. I thought there's 12 tribes. Well, there are. But here's how the math adds up. Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, were elevated to brother status. They were technically 13 tribes, because of this. So Levi is that 13th tribe. They don't get any land. Joseph gets a double portion because he got the blessing from his father through his son Manasseh and through his son Ephraim. 
Before we get to the land that the nine and a half tribes received, Joshua points out the land received by the two and a half tribes on the east side of Jordan. This is very repetitive, so I'm just going to read through it and then move on. So it says in verse 15, And Moses gave unto the tribe of the children of Reuben an inheritance according to their families. And their coast, and this is where the repetitive part begins, was from Arawer, that is on the bank of the river Arnon, and the city that's in the midst of the river, all the plain of Mediba, Heshbon, and all her cities that are in the plain, Dibon, and Bamoth Baal, and Beth Baal Meon, and Jehazah, and Kedimoth, and Mephaath, and Kirjathaim, and Sibma, and Zarath Shahar. Glad I don't live there. Would have to, I don't ever want to repeat that. I have a hard enough time explaining to people where Sanford is. Where's Sanford? It's just north of, I just, I, I don't even say Sanford anymore. Where do you live? Just north of Orlando. All the cities in the plain, all the kingdoms of Sihon, king of the Amorites, which reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses smote with the princes of Midian, Evi and Rechem and Zur and Hur and Reba, which were the dukes of Sihon dwelling in that country. They inhabited the southernmost part of those three regions on the Transjordan. Gilead's north, Bashan's far north, but they, the one just north of Moab, that's the region that Reuben received. So again, this repeats what we already read in verses 8 to 10 with a few more cities mentioned. Again, I'm not going to go over that again, but it does mention something interesting in verses 21 and 22. For it mentions that they got all the land that the Midianites held, but then it mentions they didn't just slay those Midianite kings. Verse 22, they also slew Balaam, the son of Baal, or the soothsayer did the children of Israel slay with the sword among them that were slain by them. And so the border of the children of Reuben was the Jordan River and the border thereof. This was the inheritance of the families of Reuben after their families, the cities and the villages thereof. Why does it mention Balaam here again as being slain in the battle? I thought Balaam went home. In fact, way back in Numbers 22, we read that Israel hadn't pestered Moab, but the king of Moab became nervous because Israel was camped just north of his kingdom. So he hired Balaam, this pagan soothsayer, to curse Israel. But when God wouldn't let Balaam curse Israel after four tries, the king refused to pay Balaam. And according to Numbers 24 and 25, Balaam went home. But he never made it home. Numbers 31.8 says he died when Israel fought against Moab and the Midianites. If God told Israel, leave Moab alone because they're your brothers, it, you have to go all the way back to Lot to know where the Moabites came from. They're, they're, they're family in a sense. I don't want you to conquer Moab. That's land I've given to them because I made a promise to Lot. Why does Israel fight Moab? And how does Balaam end up dead instead of safe in his home? Well, Numbers 25 tells us that the king of Moab, after Balaam leaves, came up with a new plan. He said, if I can't get someone to curse Israel, then I'll get God to curse Israel by seducing them into idolatry. And so he allied with the Midianites who were in that region where Israel was about to invade. So they're also scared. And the Midianites sent their temple prostitutes into Israel to sexually seduce the men to participate in their pagan orgies. And guess what? It worked. Now, where did King Balak get that idea? Revelation 2.14 tells us. This is the only place in the Bible that we learn this, all the way at the end. So I got to read the whole book. To the church of Pergamos, he says, I have a few things against you because you have those in your church who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things offered to idols and to commit sexual immorality. King Balak got this idea from Balaam. This pagan soothsayer wanted his paycheck so bad that he was willing to teach the Moabites how to get God's people to sin so that God would discipline them. So when Israel attacked the Midianites for this evil, Balaam was with them, and he was killed too. Now I guarantee you, Balaam, when he left his home, when Balak first hired him, he had no intention of leaving his home to die. I, I can tell you that with all surety. He didn't go, oh, you know what I'm doing? I'm going to make some really dumb decisions, and I'm going to die. That was not Balaam's plan. Balaam's plan was, I'm going to make some cachet. I'm going to make some money. 
That's what I'm going to do. This is a great deal. I've got a king offering me a king's ransom. I'm going to go make some money. But here's the reality. Sin truly takes you farther than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and charges you more than you want to pay. The bait of wealth lured Balaam to his death, and his own greed led him to make horrible decisions that cost him everything. And so he's listed here again as a warning. Don't be like Balaam. Don't be like Balaam. Make good decisions. Now, verses 24 through 28 give the region that Gad inhabited. Moses gave inheritance unto the tribe of Gad, even unto the children of Gad, according to their families. And their coast was Jezer and all the cities of Gilead. So they got the lush pasture land, the high step land in the land of Gilead up there. And half the land of the children of Ammon unto Arar, that is before Rabbah. So they got some of the Amorite king Sihon's land as well. From Heshbon unto Ramoth Mizpah and Bet-Onim unto Mahanaim unto the border of Debir. Mahanaim is actually where Jacob wrestled with God. And in the valley, Betharam and Beth Nimrah and Sukkoth and Zaphon, the rest of the kingdom of Sihon, king of Heshbon. Jordan and his border, even unto the edge of the Sea of Kinnereth, that's the Sea of Galilee, another name for it. On the other side, Jordan. This is the inheritance of the children of Gad after their families, the cities, and their villages. Verse 29, now we get to the land that Manasseh got. And God gave inheritance unto the half-tribe of Manasseh, and this was the possession of the half-tribe of the children of Manasseh by their families. Their borders were from Mahanaim, all Bashan, all the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, and all the towns of Jair, which are in Bashan, 60 cities, and half of Gilead and Ashtoreth and Edrei, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan, were pertaining unto the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, even to the one half of the children of Machir by their families. These are the countries which Moses did distribute for inheritance in the plains of Moab on the other side, Jordan, by Jericho eastward. So here we see Manasseh got the northernmost region of Bashan, and two specific families of Manasseh are pointed out, Jair and the family of Machir. The northern part of this land went to Jair. The southern part went to Machir. You might be thinking, didn't we cover all this stuff in Numbers and Deuteronomy? Why are we getting all this land that the two and a half tribes settled down in again here in Joshua? Well, it's because it was important to Joshua that Israel know that they were one nation, even though some of the tribes were divided by the Jordan River. That's an important lesson for us too. It's why it's reiterated over and over again, because we need to remember that in Christ, there is one body. Do you know that? Like there's not Calvary Chapel, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Charismatic, Pentecostal. There's none of that in Christ. None of that in Christ. In Christ, there is one body. And so an ocean or an ethnicity or even personal preference, while that may separate the physical locale where we do church, those things must never divide us as a Christian family, ever, ever. Sadly, Israel failed to recognize this. And after Solomon's reign, the nation split in half, not because of geographical boundaries, not because of a river, but because of greed, pride, and selfishness. And you know what I've found? Most divisions in the body of Christ are the same. Let that never be said of us. Well, verse 32 concludes, this is the land that Moses distributed, but under the tribe of Levi, Moses did not give any inheritance. The Lord God of Israel was their inheritance as he said unto them. So again, it's a reiteration of that there's only nine and a half tribes who will get land west of Jordan and east of Jordan. They already got their land. Now, again, we're also reminded Levi gets no land because they were the priestly tribe. Here's an interesting thought. The New Testament calls us a kingdom of priests, doesn't it? We're a kingdom of priests. That means that this world isn't our home. 
Our inheritance is elsewhere. Our inheritance is the Lord. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, it says as much. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we have a living hope. What is that living hope? It's an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, and that fades not away, purchased at Walmart for $19.99. Is that what it says? accomplished through eating some diet that someone says is based upon the Bible. Is that what it says? It says in verse four, reserved in heaven for you. Now, I'm not bashing good diets. You need to stay healthy because you want to be here as long as God wants you to be here, right? But the idea here is that our inheritance is there. It's not here. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time, our new bodies, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now, for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through many kinds of temptations. Listen, this world is not our home, guys. This world is not our inheritance. Like when you look out there, if you're trying to hang on to stuff here, you're going to be miserable because it's not meant for you to hold on to forever. Nothing you gain here is meant to hold on forever. Difficult parts of, of having a kids is they grow up and they go away because you miss them. You miss their voices. You miss the personality. You miss all the blessings they bring to the family and you want them there all the time, right? But that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is we've successfully launched our child into the world so they can impact it for Christ. When you give birth to a baby, that's your job to eventually give that grown child away so that they can have an impact upon lives just like you did. Even the things that we hold dear here are not our inheritance. Our inheritance is there. And nothing can touch it there. No trial here can touch it. If you're going through trials, be encouraged. (laughs) You don't get to keep anything here anyway. So if someone's trying to take it, it's all good. The good promise is you'll never lose anything that's waiting for you there, no matter how much someone might want to take it from you. It's a lot of preparation for land distribution, but in chapter 14, we can finally get there. It says in chapter 14, verse 1, And these are the countries which the children of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel distributed for inheritance to them. By lot was their inheritance as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine tribes and for the half tribe. So here we see, before we actually get to the beginning of who's going to get what land, we see how it's going to happen. Now, this is the group that's responsible for dividing the land. We have Eliezer, the high priest, and he needs to be there because as the high priest, it was his job to consult the Urim and the Thummim to get answers from God on major decisions. So they could take straws or lots or however they did it back then to decide which tribe got which portion of land. But in the end, it was the high priest who would confirm if whatever lot they took was was correct. He had to confirm that. So he has to be there. Joshua has to be there as the impartial leader of the nation. He's not there representing any tribe. So he needs to be there. And then the fathers, the elders, the leaders of each tribe, they need to be there to represent their tribe and to ensure that the lots were determined by God alone and not any backdoor deals or sleight of hand. The rabbis say that the way the lots worked is that the names of the tribes were placed in one bowl and some slips describing these sections of land were placed in another bowl. So you would take one out of one bowl, take one out of the other, and you'd match them up. And then Eliezer would use the Urim and the Thummim to confirm that that's the Lord's will. Now, no one knows if that's true. All that is known is that it was God who determined which tribe dwelt where. Think about that for just a minute. 
Like if you were the tribe of Asher or the tribe of Dan or the tribe of Judah, you didn't come make your request. You didn't come and make your request and say, here's the land we'd like to have. What are the odds? How do we make this deal happen? Every tribe had to trust that God would pick a good section of land for them, that he would choose a good lot for them. And you know, that's very similar to our lives as well, isn't it? We can ask God for things, and God loves to give good things to his kids. But you know, I wanted to be a Christian rock star when I got saved. And so on a mission trip, I learned how to play the guitar, and I took it home, and I'm going to learn how to play every lick of guitar solos that Petra plays and that Striper plays, because I'm the 80s, the best time for music. That's what I was listening to. I'm going to learn all those things. And I worked hard every single day. Do you know something? I still can't play it. I've been a worship leader for 15 years, playing the guitar for, wow, I was in Haiti in 90, so 90. I mean, so now it's been, what, almost 30 years? I still can't play a guitar lead. Here's what happened. As I'm working so hard, as God, why is this so hard? My friend Rob, he's, he's already, you know, he's in a band and he's already picking things up. And we learned at the same time, why am I so far behind him? And the Lord said so gently and so clearly to me, Will, because I haven't called you to be a Christian rock star, but I want to be one, Lord. I know you do, son. But if I let you get good at this, you'll run off and do all these things that you want to do and you won't do what I want you to do. Will you trust me that what I pick for you is better than what you would pick for you. Well, how important it is that we do things God's way, even if it seems to make no sense, because God knows far better than I do what's best for me. Do you believe that? Like, this is the first key. This is what we're going to close on today, but this is the first key to resting in Christ's victory. Jesus already won the battle. You understand that. You understand how to live in that victory. So now how do you rest in it? I'm I'm a pretty intense person when it comes to competition. I'm the type of guy when my football team's playing or my basketball team's playing, I'm yelling at the TV, all right? And every time Bevel looked at me, she's like, you're insane. No, I'm intense, different. But the Christian life is not meant to be done like that. And I've struggled at times in my Christian life because that's how I've tried to tackle problems in the Christian life. And I'm like, no, I'm going to beat this. And the Lord's like, that's not how you walk in victory. Victory in Christ is something rested in, not something grabbed by the horns. And the first key to resting in the victory that we have in Christ is understanding that God knows far better than I do what's best for me. And so I ask you tonight, do you believe that? That he knows far better what's best for you than you do. I want to read to you a poem that I don't know if Alan Redpath wrote it or... No, it's the words of a hymn, he says. And it goes like this. Thy way, not mine, O Lord, however dark it be. Lead me by thine own hand. Choose out the path for me. Smooth, let it be, or rough, it will still be the best. Winding or straight, it leads right onward to thy rest. I dare not choose my lot. I would not if I might. Choose thou for me, my God, so I shall walk aright. Take thou my cup, and with it joy or sorrow fill, as best to thee may seem. Choose thou my good and ill. Choose thou for me, my friends, my sickness or my health. Choose thou my cares for me, my poverty or wealth. Not mine, not mine the choice, in things great or small. Be thou my guide my strength, my wisdom, and my all. I'm just starting to try to learn these lessons. I've been a Christian for a long time. God truly knows what's best for you and me. Amen. Lord, I'm pretty sure if you would present me with the option of illness or poverty or winding roads, Lord, I would say no. And yet, Lord, you have said that it's best if I let you choose. So, Lord, 
we commit to you tonight that even though we may not be fully ready to say yes to all the things you would choose, we commit to you tonight and say we want you to be the one who chooses. We don't want to be stubborn. We don't want to fight you, Lord, like Jacob did. We don't want to constantly try to be bringing about our own life, our own pleasure, our own happiness. We want the life and the lot that you pick for us, Lord. Even if it's the land with all the Philistines in it, we commit to you tonight and say, Lord, we're okay with that. For we will trust you just like we've done to get to the point we are at now. Whatever trial it is you may have for us, Lord, we want to rest in the fact that you already won, and therefore we will do valiantly, for it is you who triumph over our enemies. We love you, Lord, and thank you for knowing what's best for us. We trust you with that in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. It could have been very easy for Israel to settle on the victories God had already given them, to have grown tired of conquering that they would become stagnant in their journey. And eventually, Israel does stop their fighting. In their idleness, they turned to idolatry and walked away from the Lord. God has so much in store for us, but we must keep moving forward. We can't settle on past victories. God is looking to take new ground, to bless us more than we could ever imagine. But we must keep fighting and moving forward in faith, knowing His direction is what's best for our lives. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.